0: Today in the Dan Cave, Trader Jerry is at it again. The Mariners make their first and possibly only big move days before the trade deadline. Taiwan Walker is now a Blue Jay. The return is a bit of a mystery. I'll try and unravel that for you. And an unsung Mariner continues to rake. We'll take a closer look at the hottest hitter in the lineup. The Seahawks are approaching a deadline of their own with roster cuts coming up fast, yet they're on the verge of adding one and possibly two more new Seahawks plot twist, they're also both old Seahawks. I'll take a look at how Paul Richardson and Justin Britt may or may not fit on the roster. Mariners and Seahawks talk up next in the Dan Cave. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Viennes. Welcome back into the Dan Cave, everyone. Episode 92. I am Dan Viennes, your host, and we have a trade to talk about today. Trader Jerry, Jerry DePoto could not wait until the trade deadline on the 31st. We are days away from that. And he could not wait, apparently, to trade Taiwan Walker for the second time. Taiwan goes to the Toronto Blue Jays today. And what makes this interesting is we don't know yet, and we won't for a while, what the return for Taiwan Walker is. We've talked about it on this very show. And that some of the trade chips that that Jerry thought he would have at his disposal, things just haven't worked out in the form of injury. I think Kendall Graveman would have been an outstanding candidate to be moved um, at this deadline if he had stayed healthy and continued pitching the way he did in his first couple of starts. Maybe even a little bit more value than Walker, even though he's a bit older. He had some years left of contract control. And then some of the relief guys, Carl Edwards, um, Yoshi Hirano, uh, Edwards is on the injured list right now. Hirano has just come back from it. Um, maybe a couple more appearances because he has such a great track record. A team looking to bolster their bullpen might make a move for a guy like Hirano. But really the only major trade chip outside of Marco Gonzalez, who reportedly the Mariners have gotten a bunch of phone calls on, but they're not going to part with him, was Taiwan Walker. And a couple episodes ago, I even said, don't trade Walker because I thought he could be a really nice piece of this young rotation moving forward. I think a couple of things have changed in the last couple of weeks since we talked about that. Number one, Walker continued to pitch well. But number two, we've seen some really positive developments in particular from Justice Sheffield. That he's put three starts in a row now together that make it appear as if he is legit and he is here to stay in the rotation. We also saw some good things in Justin Dunn's last start, but I think this is more about Sheffield. And maybe a little bit about Kikuchi, that they feel more confident that the changes he's made, uh, even though he's been nicked up a little bit this year, but that his, his adjustments um, are, are paying off and that they can count on him moving forward as well. This may also have something to do with another player that we haven't seen yet, that we'll talk about in a little bit. But there's some other guys that have stepped up too. What we've seen from Margivishis, I believe is how you pronounce it. Wow, that's tough. Um, I don't know if they see him as a starter moving forward or just a multi-inning reliever, but he's looked really good. But this may have also been about the return. Jerry has shown us uh, over the years, as GM of, of the Mariners, That when he gets what he thinks is good value he will make a deal some gms always push it to the deadline they think that that spurs more action and they think that that entices teams to uh, give up maybe a little bit more because they're up against it Uh, jerry doesn't think that way and and there have been times that the general consensus and and you know us amateur scouts at home haven't liked their turn i think about the encarnacion deal to the yankees for 110 last year in particular where he'll make a deal early. In Jerry's case, it usually means he really likes the return. But the return, officially, right now, player to be named later. What does that mean? Sometimes it means, well, they're not getting much. Usually a team will get, uh, they'll exchange a list, sometimes it's three names, sometimes it's four or five of players, and, and they'll say, look, we're, here's three players we like, We need a couple more weeks to look at them. Um, But any of these players on this list will be acceptable. Let's make the move now. Toronto, obviously, right on the verge of the expanded playoffs. Um, You know, they needed to make a move as soon as possible. Walker was slated to start the first game of the doubleheader today as the Mariners make up the game that they postponed yesterday by boycotting it Um, in uh, support of social justice and and what's going on in... in, uh, in the Midwest. But I thought I would try to play amateur detective a little bit and figure out if if we might be able to pinpoint the player. Here's what we do know. We know that it's a player to be named later. It's a little odd right off the top because technically by these new rules that the union and league agreed to as part of this shortened season and and, and the unusual roster construction where every team has a 60 player pool. Trades for the major league roster are only supposed to involve players on a team's 60 player pool. Active pool. The guys that are at the alternate training site. They can be called up at any time. This is a loophole. This is a way around that. And so we know that the player coming back to the Mariners is not somebody on the Blue Jays' current active 60-man player pool. So I wanted to dive in a little bit. Um, Baseball America immediately tweeted out their list of 30 top prospects from the Blue Jays and said, hey, Mariners, here's here's a look at you know a list that you could possibly be getting your player from. Well, I wanted to cross-reference those things and find out how many players on their top 30 list are not on their 60-man player pool, and see if we can figure out a logical fit. So I did this in a couple of ways. First off, right off the bat, I did the cross-reference. And here's what we came up with. There are 17 players in the Blue Jays' top 30 prospects list, and this is according to Baseball America, who just updated theirs in July. 17 players. In their top 30, not on the 60-man. So that's one way that I wanted to whittle it down. So we have 17 names to work with. Then I wanted to try and pin down Walker's value. What's the guy worth? How much might a team be willing to give up for him? He just turned 28 years old. That's attractive. But he's coming off about a year and a half of missed time after Tommy John surgery. That's a knock against him, obviously. He's had five starts this year, two two starts that I would label as poor starts. Didn't get out of the fourth inning in either of them. A combined nine earned runs, four walks, four strikeouts in those two starts where he didn't make it out of the fourth inning. And then he's had three good starts, 20 innings pitched between them, Only three earned runs allowed, four walks, 21 strikeouts. So when he's been good, he's been very, very good. He has shown a much more advanced arsenal than the first time around when he was a Mariner. He's shown better breaking stuff, better pitch sequencing, and still maintaining solid velocity. Um, His upside when he was a former top prospect before Jerry traded him the first time to Arizona... And that was the deal, if you'll remember, that brought back back Mitch Hanniger. Some saw his upside before as potentially, uh, well, a top of the rotation guy. Maybe not a one on a good staff, but a one or a two. Now he looks more like a guy that's that's a three on a good staff. But there's value there, especially because he's so cheap. One-year deal with Seattle, obviously coming off the injuries. Just under $800,000 left on it. So that was really appealing to the Blue Jays. So usually a rental, a guy in the last month of his deal, essentially, isn't going to fetch much as a trade asset. But one thing can improve that, and that's demand. Reportedly, there were many, many teams in playoff contention who called the Mariners about Taiwan Walker, including the Yankees. And baseball trade rumors just came out with their annual list yesterday of top 60 potential trade candidates, and they had Walker listed as number one for that reason, because they had reports that as many as 10 teams called the Mariners, including, we know for a fact, the Yankees. The trade deadline isn't until Monday, so they didn't have to move him now. Moving him now indicates to me that DePoto thought he got the best return he could possibly get. So what is that worth? It's hard to tell. It's hard to quantify judging someone else's farm system. But we do know this. Toronto was named number five overall by Baseball America in their midseason farm system rankings. The Mariners were number three. So fairly even there now. We know about all of their their stud young guys. Right. Guerrero and Bichette. Those guys aren't on that prospect list anymore. So let's just look at the Mariners' top 30 to kind of find, because we're more familiar with it, and kind of find a cutoff that we think might equate to solid value for Tyrone Walker. You look at their top 10, and when you get down into the bottom of the top 10, 7, 8, 9, 10, it's George Kirby. We haven't seen him yet. Then it's Sheffield, Dunn, Kyle Lewis, all still qualified this year as prospects. No way is Taiwan Walker going to fetch a player of that caliber in return? So let's just eliminate the top 10 in the Blue Jays' system. Because if you look really closely at it as well, n- number two in their system, Austin Martin, not on their 60-man, but he was just the fifth overall pick in the draft in June. No way would he be included in any trade. Aurelvis Martinez, um, young shortstop, he was their big-ticket international signing. He's their number seventh-rated prospect, so he would equate to George Kirby on this on this comparison. Uh, but he just signed 2018, tore it up in rookie rookie ball, was on the verge of Baseball America's top 100 prospects even at his age. No way would he be on the table. And then finishing out the top 10 would be a catcher, Gabriel Moreno, and Miguel Geraldo, a middle infielder. So let's just eliminate the top 10. So you get down into 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 for the Mariners. We're talking Brandon Williamson, left-handed pitcher, some believe is destined for the bullpen. Jake Fraley called up again recently. We're in the process of finding out, is he a 4A player? Can he put together the kind of performance to sustain it at the big league level? We don't know. Cal Raleigh, catcher. Zach Deloach, just drafted in June in the second round. Isaiah Campbell, first-round sandwich pick from a year ago, starting pitcher out of Arkansas. Then you get down into 110, 20-year-old starting pitcher candidate. And Connor Phillips, uh, just drafted in June out of community college. So there's some potential there. If you were the Mariners and you were in playoff contention and you had a chance to acquire a player with the exact same profile as Taiwan Walker, contractually and stuff-wise, age, everything else, would you part with one of those players to get him? Probably not. I mean, you drop down to Austin Shenton at 18, a guy who's been an efficient hitter but really doesn't have a true position, maybe. Sam Della playing at 20. Now we're getting into where I think you would find value. A younger bullpen arm with some upside. So you look at Toronto's second 10, 11 through 20, and you can find some players that are easy to eliminate, and then you find some very intriguing possibilities. Number 11, starting pitcher Adam Kloffenstein, He was their third-round pick in 2018, 6'5", 240, big kid. His first year in rookie ball last year, threw 66 innings, 2.17 ERA. Walked about three and a half batters per nine, but struck out nine per nine. Intriguing candidate. You can make an argument there. He might match up similarly with who the Mariners have at 11 and Brandon Williamson or Isaiah Campbell at 15. But here's the thing. Klopfenstein was drafted in the third round in 2018, and they paid him $2 million over slot to get him. He's not going anywhere. They're number 12, C.J. Van Eyck, just drafted in June, starting pitcher, unlikely to be moved at this point. Then he gets to number 13, Otto Lopez, middle infielder, shortstop, second baseman, listed that way by B.A., Primarily, I believe, plays second base. Played at low A Lansing last year at the age of 21, slightly old for that level, but he hit 324, 371, 425 with five home runs, 20 doubles, and 20 stolen bases, and a better than two to one strikeout to walk ratio. A very intriguing middle infield bat for a team that doesn't have any concerns up the middle in the Toronto Blue Jays. Number 14 is another shortstop, Estefan Machado. Um, just 18 years old, though international signing hasn't even appeared in the States yet. Let's cross him off the list. And he gets to number 15, Eric Pardino. Right-handed starting pitcher, pitched also at low A Lansing, seven starts, 2.41 ERA in his minor league career, including short season rookie ball, Averages a little over, just a touch, over three walks per nine, but strikes out 10 per nine innings. They've had him as a starter, but he projects more to a relief roll because only 5'10", 155. So now you're kind of in that range where he projects favorably and in a similar fashion to Sam Delaplante. And we know that teams believe that relief arms, if they project that way, pretty interchangeable and pretty replaceable when you need one. So remember the name, Eric Pardino. And then their number 17 prospect, Kendall Williams, just turned 20. This kid's much different profile than Pardino. Right-handed pitcher, 6'6", 205. Only made six appearances in the Gulf Coast League rookie ball last year. Five starts, two earned runs, seven walks, 19 strikeouts. And you get down to their number 18 prospect, and it's Griffin Conine. Familiar last name, right? He's an outfielder, their second rounder in 2018, 6'1", 200. Last year at Lansing, he hit 283 with a 371 on base percentage, a 946 OPS, and slugged 22 home runs, but struck out 125 times in 304 at bats, and he's 23 years old playing at low A last year. So I think that's kind of the cutoff. A couple young shortstops sit at 19 and 20. So for me, not having any intel or any reporting on this, just kind of trying to read the tea leaves, I think of any of those three names that I highlighted there. Otto Lopez, middle infielder, with a promising hit tool and some power and speed, 20 stolen bases. Eric Pardino, short in stature but misses bats. And Kendall Williams, more of your traditional projectable frame with upside starting pitcher just 20 years old. Am I overshooting there? I don't know. How how can anyone know unless they have some inside information? But if it's any one of those three names, get excited. Beyond that, you know, you get down into their, their 20 through 30, and there's some intriguing guys there, but most of them guys that are a little farther away. So, just, it'll be interesting to see who the name ends up being. Just wanted to kind of do some of that work for you, um, just to see what was out there. Now what do the Mariners do? Because now you've lost another piece of the rotation. Kendall Graveman goes down with injury first. Walker was set to start, as I said, the first game of the doubleheader today. What are they going to do in the rotation? How are they going to replace him? Kikuchi is pitching the second game today. So first game is to be determined. As I record this, it's almost game time, so we'll know soon. Likely uh, L.J. Newsom, who has uh, been stretched out as a starter and has historically in his career been a starter but has appeared out of the bullpen for the Mariners so far and showed some good things in a few innings, his first few innings a couple of nights ago, could likely go a couple of innings. It'll, it'll most likely be some sort of bullpen day, but it could be Newsom getting the start. Could be a guy like Taylor Gilbo, who can be stretched out, go a couple innings. And then you have Margivishis, Sheffield, Dunn the next three days. And then Marco. Marco would be the Monday starter. And that would be on his normal five days rest. And this is all predicated on the Mariners and Scott Service and Jerry Depoto saying they like the idea of the six-man rotation this year with the young arms they have in the rotation, and they want to stick with that. This came up when Graveman was hurt. Well, why don't you just go to a five-man rotation? They wanted to stick to a six-man rotation. So I'm going to assume that for the sake of this argument. Monday would be Marco's next turn. But then Tuesday, the home opener against the A's, you would have to turn to somebody on four days rest. It'd be too soon to turn around to Kikuchi or Newsom if that's the guy that goes. They could just go with a full bullpen day or Anthony Masevich, who has a history as a starter, but they've used him out of the bullpen. I think they've really found some things that they like with him. I don't know if they want to mess with that. Which is why next Tuesday could be an opportunity and make some sense to get Logan Gilbert his first start. First-round draft pick a couple years ago has risen up like a bullet through the system. Looks every bit the part of classic mid-to-top-of-the-rotation starting pitcher. Their top pitching prospect at this point. Some lists may have Emerson Hancock slightly above him. It would make some sense at that point to bring Gilbert up. Or, if they like the matchup better against the Rangers who are struggling versus the A's and all their professional hitters, they could go with the bullpen day on Tuesday and then have Gilbert start when the Rangers come to town later in the week. That would give him an opportunity in this season, which is going to be finished in four weeks. He could get three to four starts. And there's a a break in there in the middle of the month between the 10th and the 14th. It's kind of an odd schedule quirk where they have two days off within a four-day span. So they could skip him there. But this is a chance for him to get three to four starts without, I believe, messing with his rookie status. There was an assumption going into the season if it had been a normal season where Gilbert was going to be up by June or July and pitch the rest of the year. If they feel he's ready, based on how he's done in Tacoma, and they feel he can handle it, even if it doesn't go well, that could be the move here. And it could be one of the reasons that Depoto made the move early as well. To get a chance to get Gilbert, let's say, three starts at the end of the season to kind of take an early step, dip his toe into the pool development-wise. We shall see what happens. Uh, I just wanted to touch on one other Mariner thing too. In, and I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but how good has Austin Nola been? I had him on my list of five players the other day. as kind of a surprise along with Dylan Moore of players that I think are going to be key parts of the roster two years from now when this team is kind of over the crest of their rebuild and ready to add to the roster and start winning. He's the kind of story that you love in Major League Baseball. In some ways, I'm not saying he's going to be a Hall of Famer. It just reminds me of Edgar Martinez. Remember how old Edgar was when he finally made it to the bigs for the first time and stuck? He was in his upper 20s. I mean, Nola called up for the first time last year. It was a 29-year-old rookie. He's 30 now. He's now put 104 games together, which... We can call that a full season, right? I mean, the plan this year was for Murphy and Nola to share catching duties. And with Nola being the left-hander, he might have played in more games. So he, in a in 162-game season, he might have gotten... Between eighty and one hundred games, he's hitting two eighty one, three forty six, four eighty three in those one hundred and four games. He's been remarkably consistent. He hasn't, and sometimes this is mitigated by the fact that he's not a, he wasn't an everyday player for a lot of that. But but we haven't seen any any slumps. He never seems to really be fighting himself. 17 doubles, 15 home runs, 48 runs driven in during that time. And I think the most exciting thing is he's proven he can catch every day. What made Nola valuable to begin with was his versatility. We've seen him play second base and look natural there. He was a shortstop when he was drafted. We've seen him play some third base. He can play the outfield. He can play first base. There was some assumption that he would be in a platoon this year with Daniel Vogelbach at first place before Evan White got the big contract and we knew that he was going to be the everyday first baseman. We just weren't sure if he was ready yet. Nola can play all of those positions, but no one's even talking about how solid he's been behind the plate. And that's a good thing. You know, catchers are kind of like umpires. Like, you know they're doing a good job if you don't, you don't have to talk about them. Like That's how they felt about Omar Narvaez and why they were so willing to trade him is as, as much upside as he had with the bat. He was such a bad catcher that he was beaten out essentially by a guy who only started catching two years ago. He's made himself a very good catcher. So not only does he, he belong on that list that I had, he 100% makes sense on the roster because he can be so versatile. Even when Tom Murphy comes back, talking about 2021 now. And even when Cal Raleigh is ready, with the extra roster spot, you can really justify carrying an Austin Nola, even if Raleigh's ready to get some at-bats because he can play everywhere. He can spell white once in a while. He can certainly DH. Now that Vogelbach has been unloaded, they don't have to give. This is finally what Jerry Depoto was wanted for years. He didn't want to be locked in to one player having to DH. As much as he loved Nelson Cruz, he didn't fit the rebuild, but still. And Encarnacion, and Jay Bruce, those guys had to DH to get any value out of him. They no longer have that. So even if Murphy was healthy, when he becomes healthy, Cal Raleigh's ready. Nola can play all around the diamond for you. And he can be your almost everyday DH. Or, when Cal Raleigh's ready, Nola could be your second catcher, and Tom Murphy, when he's healthy, proves himself, produces a little bit more, could have some value as a trade piece. So just really great to see it. I just love the story. love watching him play every day. He's been hitting cleanup. He's hitting in the middle of the lineup. Um, it's a lot of fun. This team's a lot of fun to watch right now. Let's talk about the Seahawks. Uh... Fun to watch isn't a way we can describe them because we don't get to watch them. I will say this little editorial note here. I hate, well, let me start this way. I love, I'll start on a positive. I love that the Seahawks and and Q13 have partnered with them to televise at one o'clock, this one hour portion of their practice throughout most of this training camp. But I hate how it's been executed. It's It's terrible. It's not even worth watching. I used to prefer it when the Seahawks would just stream their own stuff. You actually saw what was going on in some of the drills and scrimmages. Right now it's just Aaron Levine and Michael Bumpus and and talking about, and then they bring in the sideline reporter and they do little promos and little fluff pieces and little side stories. And they just kind of have the drills as a background. I want someone showing us what's happening in the scrimmages and in the drills, talking about what they're seeing. But, they had their first full mock game yesterday. Um, and the first one you'll remember had to be cut short when Brandon Jackson sustained a concussion. Um, so really not a lot to talk about because we don't get to see things. We just kind of have to go by what the reporters are telling us. And even now, they're not allowed to share any video. So the big news this week with the Seahawks is they're, they're considering adding a couple of players on the verge of adding one, reportedly, for certain. And they're both ex-Seahawks. We see this a lot. We see this time and time again. And it it speaks to the culture that Pete Carroll has built and how much players enjoy, most players enjoy playing for the Seahawks. And the ones who didn't, we see it become issues elsewhere, right? Michael Bennett kind of took some shots at the organization. You know, he used to sleep in meetings or read books or whatever. He didn't like the rah-rah and the repetitiveness, and I've heard all these speeches before. Well, then he bounced around to three teams in less than a year and a half. Now he's out of the league. You could see that he's an issue and had more to do with the player than the team. Saw that again this last week, Earl Thomas. There's something going on with Earl Thomas that concerns me. It's unfortunate that you can't test for CTE until after you die because there's something wrong there. Less than a year after joining the Ravens. He was released. The Ravens are trying to recoup the money. They're trying to say he was guilty of conduct detrimental to the team, and he hasn't been signed by anyone yet. Chiefs were going to sign him last year until the Ravens came in at the last minute with a multi-year offer and swooped him away. They're not interested. The Cowboys reportedly are not interested. Remember that whole thing, come get me and all that? He hasn't found a home. And Pete Carroll's not going to want him back. But just about everyone else who's left is open to coming back, is open to a reunion. Listen to Bruce Irvin this year talk about how happy he is to be back. Benson Mayoa also. And that those guys are regretting now that they didn't come back a year or two earlier. So the latest is Paul Richardson. Wide receiver. Second-round pick in 2014. Obviously, we know the injury history. His best year with the Seahawks was 2017, 44 catches, 703 yards, six touchdowns, also did some punt returning, and then he cashed in in free agency. Seahawks couldn't afford to pay him. They chose to pay Tyler Lockett instead. He goes to Washington on a five-year, $40 million deal. Guess what? Injuries, also an issue there. Uh, Shoulder injury in 2018. That required surgery and then a hamstring injury ended his season prematurely last year. Only 17 games appeared in over the last two seasons, a total of forty eight catches, five hundred and seven yards, four touchdowns with the Redskins. Basically, one season worth of play. He was pretty productive with subpar quarterback play there. Basically came close to um to what he did in his best year as a Seahawk. Uh, The the website Sports Injury Predictor, which I just discovered and is a lot of fun to play around on, gives him a 59% chance of being injured again and labels him as a high injury risk, as you might imagine. So, the question is, because a lot of fans always assume that when a player with a recognizable name and a little bit of a track record gets signed, that he automatically has a role on the team and has a role on the roster slow down. Not so fast. This isn't about them being disappointed in any of the wide receiver crew. With one exception. This certainly isn't about Philip Dorsett because they've raved about him and and one of the most consistent storylines in camp so far this year is how he's just blowing by defensive backs and he's been a load to try and cover deep. He worked hard with Russell Wilson in the offseason. I think he's solidified is solidified as the Seahawks number three receiver. I also think John Ursua is going to make this roster. Brian Schottenheimer went on and on and on about him the other day. We've heard good things about him from Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll as well, about how polished he is and how much better he looks this year than last. I think he's ready to contribute. Freddie Swain, draft pick this year, can be moved on to the practice squad without Being claimed. I'm quite sure of it. We've heard some buzz about Cody Thompson. Again, won't have any trouble getting a guy like that to the practice squad. This is about David Moore, the former seventh round draft pick who showed such flashes in 2018. He had five touchdowns in the span of about three or four games but never broke out last year the way people had projected and hoped. Only 17 catches, 300 yards, two touchdowns. Doesn't show any consistent ability to separate. I think this is about David Moore. If Richardson makes the team, it will likely be at the expense of Moore. And I would say, if he's healthy, of course, it's an upgrade. And if he gets hurt, they have some some pretty cool options on the practice squad waiting. And this decision will have to be made quickly. Richardson's going to have to get in uh, as soon as he can and make an impression. Um, Right now, reportedly, by the way, he worked out for the team, took his physical, and is just going through the COVID-19 testing protocol right now, where it's expected, according to Mike Garofalo, and this has been confirmed by local beat writers, He is expected to sign with the team and join them as soon as he's out of that protocol. Now, hours after that news broke, news broke that the Seahawks are also visiting former Seahawk center, Justin Britt. You'll remember Britt, former second round pick, still just 28 years old, believe it or not, because he has such a long history with the team, tore his ACL early last year. Um, You know, we heard early in the offseason before he was released that he was ahead of schedule in his rehabilitation. He looked great. They were counting on him. Um, obviously, he became became a cap hit, and then they went and signed B.J. Finney from the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, this one raised some eyebrows. Because the center position is, isn't as solidified as we thought. From day one of training camp, we thought it was going to be Finney. Russell Wilson even to, said so. He graded out extremely high as a center in his time in Pittsburgh, especially in pass blocking. Um, He was an outstanding center in college. But Ethan Posick, the former second-round pick, has been working exclusively with the first team for almost all of camp. And Finney's been playing center and both guard spots. So the thought is that Posick has finally found his home. He was primarily a center in college, and they may have done him a disservice by trying to make him into a super sub and play him all over the line. But his best position is always profiled to be center. He's just never gotten an opportunity there. You know, the Seahawks were in love with Joey Hunt. He's finally been released. He was just undersized. Uh, I think the Indianapolis Colts signed him this week, so Posick has gotten his chance. He's made the most of it. He's running with the first team, and Finney is subbing in all three spots. A lot of value in that, and really the amount of money they signed Finney for, very reasonable. This isn't necessarily an indictment on Finney. I hope, again, it's hard to see without preseason games. We can't see it with our own eyes. I hope this is Posick reaching his potential finally and getting some value out of him because there were times where we all wanted to give up on this guy, right? So I see this as a good thing. They haven't said anything about Finney. But when I saw the report that Britt was coming in, certainly was caused to raise my eyebrow. Are they really that down on Finney? I don't think so. And here's why. Reportedly, they're not on the verge of signing Britt. That's what everything that I see this morning sounds like, as opposed to Richardson, who once he passes the protocol is expected to join the roster. That isn't the expectation with Britt. So I see this simply as the, Mar- as the Seahawks doing their due diligence, checking Britt out, working him out, doing the physical, finding out, is he healthy? Because this team is in a contention window, and they cannot afford to have an issue at center. The rest of their line, they're really feeling good about. Raving about Brandon Shell at right tackle. Raving about the rookie third-round draft pick, Damian Lewis, at right guard. Dwayne Brown obviously is entrenched at left tackle. Mike Upati, without having to have a full training camp in preseason, he's healthy, ready to go. He pencils in at left guard, then they have the young kid Phil Haynes behind him. We're hearing this week from Schottenheimer and Carroll about how maybe the best offensive lineman overall in camp so far has been Jamarco Jones, working on both sides, right tackle and left tackle. That's great to hear. They can't afford to have an issue at center. It, when the bullets start flying, if POSIC's not ready, then Finney's the fallback. But maybe then, Brit is a move for some additional depth. So I think that's just them considering him for insurance. That's going to do it for me today. Episode 92 is in the books. Um... Obviously, I'll be keeping my ear to the ground. If there are any more Mariner trades, I'll react to those. And then we'll get ready next week when I join you again. We will look ahead and I will have my full Seahawks 53-man roster projection for you. And we'll look at uh, maybe Logan Gilbert being in a Mariner uniform by then as well. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. You can email the show at TheDanCaveShow at gmail.com go to my anchor profile page, which is linked in my Twitter profile. You can leave me a voice message for inclusion on the show as well. And please hit subscribe so you get notification of new episodes. I'm Dan vians This is the Dan Cave. Thank you very much for listening. As always, go Seahawks, go Mariners, and go Coops.